The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour, the show of dreams and stories, some true, some fantasy. If you'd like to support us with our mission to keep telling the human story, you can always go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. On this particular episode, we're joined by a remarkable songwriter, singer, musician, record producer, and I have to say, he's got a heck of a name. I like this name very much, Rafe Van Hoy. (laughs) I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He has done a lot in music, and some of the songs he's written have been recorded by the greatest artists and acts of all time, George Jones, Tammy Wynette. The Great Oak Ridge Boys, Michael Martin Murphy, Brooks and Dunn, Reba McIntyre. He's worked in just about all styles of music. He landed his first publishing contract at 17 years of age. In the next seven years, he became one of Nashville's new emerging songwriters with 10 number one songs and as many top 10 singles, along with nearly 200 cuts by other artists. Rafe Van Hoy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks for thanks for asking me to be here. It's an honor, believe me. So where does the Rafe Van Hoy story begin? Where are you from? I'm from Bristol, Tennessee, East Tennessee. Actually, I grew up in Bristol and outside of like kind of out in the county, a little bit about eight miles south of Bristol. But uh, yeah. Was it always songwriting? What, what in particular got you started in music? Well, what happened was I, I've always liked music since I was pretty young, drawn to it. And, um, you know, played some instruments in grade school and got in the band when I was in junior high. But uh, when I was 10 years old, my grandmother had a little like student model guitar with nylon strings, little Decca guitar, which I still they still wish they made because they're great guitars to learn on. And I, I don't know if there's any around that are like that for people, young people with small hands and stuff. But anyway, um, she I used to play with it when I was at her house. And she said, uh, do you want to take that home and play with it? I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. She says, well, I don't play it. It was given to me, and I don't play it. It's just in the corner there. Take it home and mess around with it. So I took it home and fell in love with it immediately. And as my dad used to say, it became like an extension of my body. I didn't go anywhere without it. And then I started watching. um, My dad found found some shows on educational TV with a girl named, woman named Laura Weber. And I used to watch that to learn how to, you know, thumb finger kind of very basic finger style picking and chords and all that kind of stuff and it i just took to it really quickly and easily and um you know i knew that that's what i wanted to be doing is just playing guitar so i just that's all i did like every day from then on would you say that you're more moved by melody or is it the words of a song that tend to get you you know, in the beginning, I listened to songs, what I thought I was, you know, my, my judgment on songs was way different because I, I judged them on listening to the entire record and the sound of the record and 
elements of the record sounds, you know. As I got into music business, I started learning about songwriting. And so I started learning about more about lyrics because especially country songwriting in Nashville, there's a heavy emphasis on the lyrics. There's a lot of pop records and songs that the lyrics are more about what they sound like. And some of them are not so worried about what the meaning is. And some, some people don't even know what the meaning is and they'll admit, you know, like stairway to heaven. What does that mean? You know, so it's and they go, well, I like people to make up their own interpretation. So that's kind of what where my head was at. But after being in Nashville very quickly, I realized uh, being around songwriters that they had a whole different view of lyrics and the content of that. So in the beginning, my emphasis was on the music, the melody, the chord structure, progressions and all of those things. But as time has gone on, I still love the music and the melody because I think the melody is what people remember most. That's what makes that's something they can whistle or hum and and makes it sound like a hit. But as long as if you've got a hit melody, why not put some lyrics to it that have some meaning? You know, not that every song has to be a heavy meaning or clever. It can just be fun. But why not make it some words that have have something to them, you know? So as time has gone on, I've gotten more and more and more into lyrics to where now when I write, I really don't write with an instrument that much. I'll just get ideas and start typing lyrics down in my phone or on the computer. Hmm. Interesting. Would you say that there has been a person in your life who has kind of been like a mentor, someone who took you under their wing and maybe taught you a lot about the art of songwriting? Yes, there's a lot. I've had actually, I've had a lucky life and uh, I have had a lot of people, a lot of help from a lot of people. But the two people that uh, helped me the most, especially in the beginning, were my dad and Curly Putman. My dad was a musician as well. He was a drummer and kind of a Renaissance man guy. He was just really, really excelled at anything he did you know very talented guy very forward thinking when i started playing guitar and started picking up on it pretty pretty good and getting fairly proficient with it when i was 15 he said you need to write songs and i said uh, really he goes yep that's where it's going that's what people are doing now i said okay i said well i, I think i just want to play guitar i said nope you got to write songs that's where that's where the future is for you and so then I didn't write any songs. And so then he wrote complete lyrics with verses and choruses while he was at work and would hand them to me at the end of the day and go, put some music for that. And that's how I became a songwriter. Without him, I would not have been a songwriter, period, because I wasn't thinking about that. It hadn't entered my mind, really. I mean, maybe it would have years later, but maybe not. But then I started writing songs, co-writing songs with him. And then he said, we need to go to Nashville and meet people and play our little primitive tapes and all that sort of stuff. And they, they were good as we could do with home stuff at the time, you know, but they, they weren't really commercial. But I met a man named Curly Putman, who is a uh, legend master songwriter who wrote Green Green Grass of Home, My Elusive Dreams, D-I-V-O-R-C-E with Bobby Braddock. And... um he stopped loving her today, many, many, many other hit, hits. And he was, you know, well-respected, 
great songwriter in Nashville. When I met him, he took me under his wing and he said, just, you need to make my publishing company your home and just show up every day like you're going to school and learn from my writers and other writers and just figure it out. And so he became my second mentor. So with a, without my dad and Curly Putman, none of anything that I've had happen in the music business would have happened. And uh, Curly opened the door that led to every other door after that. So interesting. So you could say your very first co-writer was your dad. That's right. Huh. Exactly. Now, I'm just curious, do any of those songs survive? You know what? I have those on reel-to-reel tape somewhere. I haven't listened to them in a long time, and I need to. I'm kind of afraid to, <laughs> in a way. I mean, I want to listen to them, but I get so critical about stuff I do. But I need to. I want to listen to them. I need to get them transferred on a format that I can play, because I don't even own a reel-to-reel tape machine anymore, you know? But And those tapes don't last forever. The oxide falls off of them. So uh, I need to preserve those in some way so I can at least hear where it all started, you know. Your time with Curly Putman, was he a guy, I mean, as you were saying, one of the greatest writers who ever was. Right. With that being said, was there any ego to him or anything like that? Not really. You know, he and Bobby Brad I met Bobby Braddock through him and through through Curly I wound up being a tree writer which became Sony now, but back then tree publishing uh, a couple years after I, it was already the biggest independent publisher in Nashville, but a couple years after I went to tree with Curly's company, it became like the hottest publishing company in town. And it was just unbelievably crazy how much activity was around that building and that publishing company. So without Curly, I would, I would not have been there, but Curly and Bobby, both are are pretty much devoid of ego. They're just the nicest, normal people in the world. Of course, Curly's no longer with us, but uh, they were both of them have been my dear friends my whole adult life. I'm wondering if you could possibly play for the listeners out there maybe one of the songs from that era of your life. Um, let's see. I could play one. Actually, I could play a song that I wrote with Curly. I wrote several songs with Curly. I got to, I mean, I had no idea when I met him that he'd become one of my dearest friends like family and also a co-writer that we would have songs recorded and all of those, you know, success with. There was a song that, that Curly... And I and um, Don Cook wrote one afternoon while we were waiting to go to a party. And it was late in the day. We were in Curly's office. And uh, we started kicking around some ideas. And this was a song, one of the songs. We wrote two songs, actually. But this was one of them that wound up being recorded by several people. It was a single by T. Graham Brown that hit, uh, it went very high on the charts. It might have been number one, but if it wasn't, it was close up there somewhere. But it got also got recorded by Kenny Rogers on his Gambler album, which is was like an unbelievably successful album. 
you know, getting a an album cut on that out on that record was probably equal to having a single on some other artist, you know, because it sold so many copies. I mean, years, a few years after it was out, it was at 10 million, 10 or 12 million. And then I ran into uh, Peggy Butler, who's the, the uh, widow of um, Larry Butler, who produced the album. And she told me that to date it has sold 35 million records. So, that's pretty pretty good piece of luck there, and and also Kenny Rogers, of course. It's just an honor to have a song recorded by him anyway. He's such a great singer. But uh, anyway, this was a song that uh, that we wrote that afternoon. It was also recorded by Isaac Hayes and Millie Jackson. Wow, which is really cool to hear them do their thing because they added kind of a rap thing on the front, a talking part, not a rap, but a talking part on it and just really put their stamp on it. it's a really amazing version but anyway the our version goes like this oh i wish that i could hurt that weekend At least I had you every now and then And in between the sorrow At least there was tomorrow And as long as there's tomorrow There's no end Oh, I wish that I could hurt that way again I wish that we could play that game again The one where I would lose, you would win The times you would desert me How the emptiness would hurt me But your coming back was always worth the pain Oh, I wish that I could hurt that way again that's part of it i didn't do the whole thing that that's the body of the song man you're sounding good tonight well, cool. Thank you. I try. hope I'm somewhere on the key, on one key. I like to sing in one key at a time. You know. It sounds good. <laughs> Thank you. Well, just a moment ago, you were mentioning Bobby Braddock, and mm-hmm. he was the last guest of this show for the year 2019. And Yeah, I listened to that. That's a great interview, too. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. What would you say... If you had to describe Bobby Braddock, when you get to know the guy, when you're eyeball to eyeball with him, what is he really like? Yeah. Well, I know Bobby pretty well because, you know, when we, after we first met, we were kind of running buddies, as you want to, if that's the right term. We, we did a lot of things together and had a lot of fun together and a lot of laughs. Bobby is, a lot of people throw the word genius around pretty easily. I'd say Bobby 
actually does for sure. Everybody thinks of him as a songwriting genius, and I would say I'd have to agree with that. Uh, he's brilliant, brilliant at his the way his mind works. Getting to write with him just to listen to how his mind works was really a huge, huge benefit to me and to see see how he thinks and also get to know him as a great, great human being. He's funny. He's, he's actually really hilarious. And he's really serious, too. And he's really astute about politics and the world. And he's just a really, really cool guy. And, and um, you know, as a songwriter, I, there aren't too many people that you could put. Everybody writes differently, but but Bobby would be at the top of the list. There's a song that you and Bobby wrote together. I have to say it's just a fantastic song. One of the great songs would be Golden Ring. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about that song. Well, there's a lot of story to this. <laughs> but uh, I was 20 years old at the time, okay? And I think Bobby was 12 or 13 years older than me. But Bobby would already had several hits. D-I-V-O-R-C-E before, before I even came to town. And uh, several, I mean, he had 26 He's had 26 or 28 songs recorded by George Jones. So he had had lots of hit records before I met him. But we, we met and got to be friends. And um, one morning I happened to be at the publishing company at Tree Publishing. And Bobby came in and he was supposed to meet Curly there to work on a song to pitch to George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Now, the story on that is... They had recently gotten divorced. So, you know, they were basically king and queen of country music at that point. So anything they put out went straight to the top of the chart. You know, they George was the biggest artist and so was Tammy individually, but separately their their duets were just, you know, great and and really, really I don't think anybody could touch them as far as success wise in that era. So whatever they did was was great. And they sounded great together. Well, anyway, after their divorce, no one thought they would sing together. They thought they figured they'd record individually, but not as a duet. And they decided to do one more duet album. And I really wasn't aware of that, I don't think. But Bobby knew that they were recording the next week. And he had an idea that he got from watching a song called, I mean, watching a movie called Diary of a Handgun about how the, the life of the gun and all the people that it went through, you know, and how it kind of went full circle. And he had an idea called Golden Ring. He wanted to write a song that had a full circle kind of story, same way. And Curly, or had planned on writing with Curly, and Curly lived in Mount Juliet's about 20 miles outside of town, and Curly didn't want to come in that day. So he was there. He said, I just talked to Curly. He's not coming in today. You want to help me work on this song idea I've got for George and Tammy? And I, of course, the answer was yes. <laughs> you know? I went, yeah. So <laughs> we went in one of those little, they had two little writer's rooms on the bottom floor. And I mean, literally, they, it was just big enough to get a little tiny spinet piano up against the wall and a couple of chairs. And there was no windows. One was one was uh, green with green shag carpet, and the other one was orange with orange shag carpet, or maybe the carpet was reversed. I can't remember, but it was kind of like that Holiday Inn green and orange kind of thing. 
back then. So we, anyway, we went in there and um, worked on this idea of his. And uh, Bobby actually carried carried the, uh, he did the heavy lifting on this song. It was his idea. And I helped and I threw in my, the best I could ideas I had. But this is, it was, Bobby was, uh, I always tell people, Bobby was Tiger Woods and I was a caddy. But actually, that's not true because Tiger Woods' caddy was a professional at the time. I was 20 years old. So I had had some success, and I had written a song called What's River For that would become a big hit some years from then. So I was kind of on my way, but I was nowhere near Bobby's league, you know. So anyway, we finished the song in two, three hours and argued about the percentage on it because I didn't want to take an equal percentage, and Bobby didn't want to give me any less. So we finally came to an agreement on that 60 40 was as little as he would give me. Cause I just felt like I didn't, you know, usually you, I'm probably giving you too much information, but usually when, when you co-write with somebody, it's automatically 50 50, even if they do more and you do less or you do more and they do less just because when you write songs, it's always different. It's never 50 50. And as you write over time with people, you'll, carry the ball more one time and then they'll do it the another time and it evens out. But without their energy there, that song wouldn't have developed like it did. So, but in this case, I thought if this winds up being a big hit, you know, I'm going to feel bad if I'm, if I'm making the same amount of money that Bobby is, you know? <laughs> so anyway, and I'm glad I did that and I'm glad he agreed to that. But anyway, the, the amazing part of this story is that, I think we we wrote it on like a I'm going to say like a Thursday and I demoed it up in their little four track studio. I put a little tape down that afternoon. We gave it to Buddy Killen, who was the publisher, our publisher. And the next day he played it for Billy Sherrill, who was their producer. They put it on hold and the next week they recorded. And then four months later, it was number one. And it just doesn't happen like that. You know, <laughs> it'd be nice if it did, but it almost never, ever happens like that. So it was a pretty amazing sequence of events and the way that all the dots and stars lined up on that. And that song put me on the map as a songwriter and uh, helped my career out immensely. So Bobby is uh, really responsible for kind of getting me, um, putting me on the, road to more success as a songwriter for sure would you possibly be willing to play this song for all of us i can that'd be I'll awesome play, play you my version do you want to hear half of it or the whole thing or? i would love to hear the whole thing but it's up to you okay well <laughs> In a pawn shop in Chicago On a sunny summer's day A couple gazes at Wedding rings there on display She smiles and nods her head As he says, honey, that's for you It's not much, but it's the best That I can do Golden green, golden green With one tiny little stone Waiting there for someone to take it home by itself, by itself. It's just a cold metallic thing. Only love can make a golden 
wedding ring In a little wedding chapel Later on that afternoon An old upright piano plays that old familiar tune Tears roll down her cheeks and happy thoughts run through her head As he whispers low with this ring I thee wed Golden ring, golden ring With one tiny little stone Shining ring, shining ring Now at last it's found a home By itself, by itself It's just the cold metallic thing Only love can make a golden wedding In a small two-room apartment As they fight their final round He says you won't admit it But I know you're running around She says one thing's for certain I don't love you anymore And throws down the ring As she walks out the door Golden ring, golden ring With one tiny little stone Cast aside, cast aside Like the love that's dead and gone By itself, by itself It's just a cold metallic thing Only love can make a golden wedding ring In a pawn shop in Chicago on a sunny summer's day, a couple gazes at the wedding rings there on display. Golden ring. Ah, thank you. <laughs> Insert crowd noise here. <laughs> nice. There's uh, another little piece of, well, the small. There's always more story to songs, but um, in the third verse, our original lyric was, he says, you won't admit it, but I know you're running around. And back then, they felt like that was too offensive to say that about a woman because you weren't supposed to say anything that derogatory towards women in songs back then. So they made us change it to, he says, you won't admit it, but I know you're leaving town, which we hated. But we thought, hey. Whatever they need to have a single, we're, we're happy with, you know. But uh, we were thinking, well, leaving town really isn't enough reason to divorce somebody, probably, unless they're leaving town for good. But uh, anyway. Well, when you're a writer, how important is what's going on in your life? Love, breakups, not sure of, of direction or moving, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like Bobby once said, actually quoting him, he said uh, he gets his ideas for songwriting just about from life, you know? So I think everybody does that. You draw on your experiences. Some songs are not about your life. They're not anything about your life. In fact, I've written a lot of songs with, with uh, girls, women, two females, writers and singers that, you know, I had to kind of see it through their eyes and put yourself in their position or any, or even if it's not a gender change, just a song about somebody that, you know, like Mark Colley and I wrote a bunch of prison songs one time and 
knock on wood, I haven't been to prison yet, but uh, you, you got to kind of project <laughs> yourself in that place. So in those cases, you kind of, you know, may not have as much to draw on, but usually, I guess the older you get, the more you can relate to nearly anyone's circumstance so that you can draw on that. I don't, sometimes I write songs about the actual thing I'm going through. If a, if a song just comes out and comes into my head, you know, there definitely have been songs that I've written about what I'm going through, but I don't always do that. Sometimes they're just ideas about people and life and whatever that, that just come to me. And, and I just try to, you know, write them as good as possible. You were mentioning that you had listened to the Bobby Braddock interview, and one of the favorite things about that night was afterwards, he gave me a ride in his car, and he was just telling me about different things, and at times I was thinking seriously, and at times I was getting a laugh, (laughs) (laughs) and I asked him, you know, songwriters can be funny people, Yeah, who he thought the funniest people were in nashville i would like to know from you who who do you think has the best sense of humor you know there there are a lot of people a lot of songwriters that could be sit-down comedians and some could be stand-up comedians i mean some of the things they come up with are just unbelievable unbelievably funny and bobby's one of them too i've he's done some things and we, he and I used to get a little crazy, not in a malicious way, but we used to do kind of crazy things and things for things to kind of have a little shock value for people. Like we'd play bumper cars in the middle of music row where I'd hit, tap him in the back with his car and he'd get out and we'd act like we're in a fight and stuff. And <laughs> it was all just put on stuff just cause we were being stupid, you know? But, um, I would say the king of funny, one of the Kings of funny was a guy named Roger Miller. And I didn't know him personally, but you could make a book of Roger Miller quotes. And I use some of them in my gigs sometimes talking about them because they're so hilarious. He definitely was one of them. And I know I don't I haven't heard all of his things. There was a guy named Grant Boatwright who used to know all of nearly all of his quotes. But, uh, you know, like one time... Um, Somebody asked him, is there an R in Warsh? And without hesitation, he goes, well, if they ain't, they ought to be. You know? <laughs> and it's stuff like that. I saw, I was in the room when that one happened. I thought, man, my mind will never work that fast. You know? He's he's credited with a lot of, lot of hilarious things. I think somebody in his band was complaining, or a friend was complaining about a divorce he was going through and how much money it was going to cost him. He says... Buddy, don't worry about the money. There's a lot more where that's going and uh, stuff like that, you know, <laughs> hilarious stuff. But uh, so Bobby, Roger, th- there's a lot of other people that are pretty, pretty clever. Like maybe they may not be the funniest person every time, but they'll come out with stuff that's just unbelievably funny. I have to think about some other people that I would put in that category. Shel Silverstein was like that too. He was pretty daggum funny. Of course, you know, he he was brilliant at a lot of things. Bobby Bear, pretty funny. Don Cook is is, is pretty funny. There's a lot of I have to think about it. <laughs> but there's a lot of people that you would put in the give them a high rating in the comedic department. 
I was mentioning at the beginning of the interview all of the different acts that have recorded your work, singers and groups and some of the biggest ones, but then to name just a couple more, you have Fleetwood Mac, you have John Connolly, Leanne Rimes, even Trick Daddy. I would like to know, was (laughs) there a particular rendition that was made of one of your songs that especially knocked you out? You thought, wow, they really, really did a good job with this. Well, of course, anything that George and Tammy or either one individually did, I mean, you can't beat it. You know, their voices are just magical. So that's, you can't, you know, those are at the top of the list always. That song, I uh, Wish I Could Hurt That Way Again, that Millie Jackson and Isaac Hayes did, that, that was great. I had several songs recorded by Millie Jackson, actually, and she is an amazing singer. And I think she's still performing, maybe. I've never met her, but I'd love to meet her and thank her because uh, every song she ever recorded of mine sounds great. And I'm a, I grew up listening to R&B and soul and, and uh, you know, the more soulful side of things before I started learning about country music. And that's that's hits me deep in my heart. I love all of that stuff, that kind of music and that element to it, which more people sing like that down country than they ever did. But there are the, there's a guy named Paul Carrick that I wrote a song with, lucky enough to write a song with that he put on his album. I don't know if you know who Paul Carrick is, but it's funny because I, I tell my friends he's like the most famous person you never heard of. <laughs> a lot of people know who he is, don't get me wrong, but he was the lead singer in Ace that had How Long Has This Been Going On? Oh. And he was the lead singer in Squeeze with Tempted by the Fruit of Another and all the squeeze hits. And he was also sang with Mike and the Mechanics. Wow. In the Living Years and uh, all those hits, Silent Running, Can You Hear Me Running? I mean, the list of giant, huge, great records he's sung on is unbelievable. But uh, he, he was definitely one of them. When we were writing together the afternoon we got to get together, I had a chord progression and kind of a, a little bit of an idea for a melody and I showed him and, and so um, I put on the recorder and he said, well, just play the chords and let me, let me mess with it. So I put on the little cassette or whatever, and he's singing along with what I'm playing, just making up non-words, you know, you know, they're not words. He's just making sounds. And it sounded like a hit record without the words, just hearing his voice making those non-words just blew me away. I'm like, good grief. I'm getting chills all over my arms and up my back. And, my, you know, I'm thinking, I got to come up with some good words to this because whatever they are, it's going to sound great. You know, there are several artists that I'd put in that category. Dan Seals is another one I got to be friends with. Uh, What's River before which was um, recorded by several people and eventually a, a hit by Michael Martin Murphy. The first recording on it was by England Dan and John Ford Coley. And uh, England Dan was Dan Seals. And he was somebody that I uh, got to be friends with over the years and got to play with him on the road a little bit. And we wrote a lot of songs together, but his, his voice and singing still is amazing to me. I love love all of his 
the way he sings. With all the things that you've had happen in your life and all of the experiences that you've had, just it's incredible, all the great artists that have recorded your work, but also getting things like Grammy nomination, having your songs played countless times on the radio. What is the best thing about being Rafe Van Hoy? Um, being on. <laughs> being, getting to be around the people that I know and getting to make music that I could, that would pay my rent, you know, getting to be, getting to work with talented, great, nice, wonderful people, make music professionally, you know, because to, to get to work at anything you love, I think is a dream come true. And I've been super, super, super lucky, 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 lucky. As hard as you work and as good as you might be, nothing happens without other people helping you and without a fair dose of luck in there to connect the dots and timing and all of that. So I've been very, very fortunate to have a lot of people help me and a lot of great people help me and, and um, be able to work with. And that's my my biggest treasure of, about it all is getting to know the people that are great people and getting to make music with them and know them personally. I always like to give the guest the microphone at the end, just speaking to whoever might be tuned in. We just never know in today's day and time. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Um, I would say, like, if I was given a commencement speech somewhere at some university, <laughs> I would, one of the things I would say is, as time has gone forward in my life, I've tried to be grateful and I've tried to be um, thankful for all the good things that have happened to me and all the opportunities that have happened, whether I made the most of them or not. But looking back, I think as much as I thought I was being grateful, I could have been a whole lot more grateful. And I think gratitude is kind of an overlooked thing that means a lot. And it means a lot to other people when you show their gratitude. And I think um, that's a good element to have in your life. Kind of changes your perspective on a lot of things. And you know, keeps you from complaining as much, which is always a good thing. <laughs> complaining can be a bad habit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, gratitude, I think, is um, is something that's, that's uh, something I always think of as something that's very, very important, something at the top of the list for sure. Absolutely. I like what you said. You said, as, as much as I have been grateful, I don't think I've been grateful enough. <laughs> Nobody's yeah. ever said that. I'm not sure you can be grateful enough, actually, <laughs> you know. I want all the listeners out there to check out RafeVanHoy.com, R-A-F-E-V-A-N-H-O-Y. Rafe Van Hoy, thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you, Paul, and thank you very much. And I'm going to be a regular listener to the Paul Leslie Hour now. So <laughs> thank you very much for having me on. You're very kind. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope we get a chance to do this again. I'd love to do it. Anytime you want to, I would love to. Wonderful. All right, sir. Well, have a great night. Okay, you too, Paul. Thank you very much. All right.
Goodbye.